The existence of poverty represents a sundering, both of solidarity among people and also of communion with God. Poverty is an expression of sin, that is, of a negation of love. It is therefore incompatible with the coming of the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love and justice. Poverty is an evil, a scandalous condition, which in our times has taken on enormous proportions. To eliminate it is to bring closer the moment of seeing God face to face in union with humanity. That was an excerpt from A Theology of Liberation by Gustavo Gutierrez, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast. The text before us this week is Gustavo Gutierrez's The Preferential Option for the Poor, and it is an immense one, and there might be three reasons for that. First, this chapter is our first foray into the systematic content of liberation theology. In previous episodes, we've been laying the historical and methodological groundwork now we're going to get into the content itself. Second, Gustavo Gutierrez is, well, a giant, uh, widely regarded as one of the founding fathers of liberation theology. Third, the preferential option for the poor is the heart of liberation theology, as Gutierrez mentions at the beginning of the chapter. So I proceed in this episode with great excitement, but also with fear and trembling, knowing that we are about to walk on some very sacred ground. But let's get to it. Before we can talk about the significance of the preferential option for the poor, we have to know what we mean when we say poor. What does the Bible say about poverty? And how has the church interpreted the term the poor? Famously, the Latin American bishops at Medellin in 1968 spoke of three definitions of poverty. Primarily, there is real poverty. That's material poverty. It's an evil, something not desired by God. As Gutierrez mentions in the excerpt from the intro, it's the result of a break in solidarity between all people and ultimately between us and God. It's the result of oppression, some people accumulating wealth at the expense of others. It's also an injustice. It's, and this meaning is the chief meaning of poverty in the Bible. It's that plain, literal sense of the biblical text. So that's the first one. The second one is spiritual poverty. And what spiritual poverty is, is an openness to God's will. In the Society of Jesus, uh, we use the terms holy indifference or availability to describe this sense of poverty. Are we attached to certain possessions certain thoughts, certain attitudes, certain places, people? Or are we radically dependent on God alone 
Do we cling to worldly created things or do we trust in God? Lastly, there is the poverty of solidarity. This type of poverty is an alliance with the poor and a protest against the situation that poor folks suffer. The wealthy have a poverty of solidarity when they, as Jesus commands, sell everything, give to the poor, and come and follow him. They make an alliance with the poor, working alongside the poor for their liberation, using their privilege to end the very system that granted them that privilege. The poor have a solidarity uh, in terms of their poverty when they work with other oppressed peoples for the sake of their mutual liberation. All people, even the poor themselves, Gutierrez says, are invited to be in solidarity with the marginalized, seeking not private accumulation, but the good of the community, especially those who are suffering the most. So there are these three senses of poverty, real, material poverty, spiritual poverty, and poverty of solidarity. And I remember when I first read about these three senses as an under undergraduate, I was blown away, really, by the clarity of the bishops at Medellin and also of Gutierrez. It's a framework that's very helpful for analysis and action. We're called to end real poverty, and we're called to embrace spiritual poverty in the poverty of solidarity. Most of Gutierrez's chapter in Mysterium Liberationis treats real poverty and makes the case for why it is the most relevant and authentic sense of poverty in the Bible. But before doing so, Gutierrez, following the methodology we've outlined in previous shows, starts with the signs of the times in Latin America and to an extent the whole world. He speaks of the historical event of the eruption of the poor, a new presence in society and in the church of those who have been quote-unquote absent. And he doesn't mean that the poor haven't always been there, and he certainly doesn't mean that the poor haven't resisted oppression in the past. Rather, what he means, I think, is that the poor have shifted towards an increasing protagonism in history, especially in the 20th century. In Latin America, there was the extremely influential Mexican Revolution in 1910. There was the ousting of the U.S. Marines from Nicaragua for, by Augusto Cesar Sandino in the early 1930s. There was the movement towards social democracy in the late uh, 1940s and the early 1950s throughout Latin America including important agrarian reforms, and then there was the Cuban Revolution in the 1950s. And there are parallel movements with their own contexts and diverse histories in Africa and in Asia. Gutierrez does not limit uh, this newfound protagonism to the fundamental economic angle. He also speaks of indigenous communities, black communities, and women called doubly oppressed and marginalized by the bishops at Puebla. In each case, though, there is a move from structural objectivity to subjectivity, each group progressively breaking the chains of subjugation, finding freedom from the control of the other, and becoming change makers of their conditions. History does not necessarily move in a straight line of progress, but there can be no doubt that important advances have been made, especially in movements of national independence from colonial and neocolonial oppression. 
And this same process is occurring within the church, though for so long the discipline of theology has been under the domination of the clergy, of men, of the educated elite. The eruption of the poor in the church has meant an awareness of, quote, the right of the poor to think their faith, end quote. The gospel is good news for the poor, so the hermeneutic monopoly of the rich over the gospel, as we discussed on the episode previously, is anti-evangelical. The gospel is principally for the poor, so the poor are its best interpreters, hence the prevalence of Christian-based communities in liberation theology's ecclesiology, that place where the poor interpret the Bible according to their conditions. And Gutierrez writes that, Quote, the eruption of the poor is an eruption of God, end quote. What might he mean by this? I, I think we can read this powerful line in a few ways. One, the eruption of the poor is an eruption of God because God's reign is, as Jesus defines it in Luke, the uplifting of the poor from misery. And two, it's an eruption of God because God identifies with the poor. God is the hungry, the thirsty, the migrant, the sick, the naked, the incarcerated person. So when these people rise, God rises. God is these people. Three, God moves in history by taking the side of the poor, by mustering divine strength to free the poor, as was the case in Exodus. When the poor are uplifted, it is because God is at work, serving as the impetus for the eruption. Revolutionary energy has an infinite source in God's power and might. God is the God of the living, and the eruption of the poor is resistance against death. Poverty, whether slowly or quickly, kills. Gutierrez writes, quote, Poverty means death. Food shortages, housing shortages, the impossibility of attending adequately to health and educational needs, the exploitation of labor, chronic unemployment, disrespect for human worth and dignity, unjust restrictions on freedom of expression in politics and religion alike that are the daily plight of the poor. The lot of the poor, in a word, is suffering. Theirs is a situation that destroys peoples, families, and individuals. Medellin and Puebla call it institutionalized violence. Equally unacceptable is the terrorism and repressive violence with which the poor are surrounded. End quote. Yet, Gutierrez does not reduce the life of the poor to their systematic subjugation, to that social economic element, to an objectification of the poor in his own analysis. Poverty is about more than economic structures and statistics. He claims, quote, at the same time, and it is important to remember this, to be poor is a way of life, a way of thinking, loving, praying, believing, and hoping, of spending free time, of fighting for life, end quote. There is an intuitive, qualitative dimension to poverty. Those of us who have lived in more than one socioeconomic context know this. A poor rural community thinks, prays, and spends free time differently than a rich suburban community. Wealthy landowners in rural spaces have different beliefs, hopes, and attitudes than the urban poor. And there are differences across intersection, intersecting racial, ethnic, and gender lines as well. 
the church, the whole church, would do well to get to know these differences so that it is not assumed that one way, especially not the way of the rich, is the only way of being Catholic, of living, of dreaming, of loving. But it is not enough for the church to have a felt sense of the life of the poor. Proximity and encounter are fundamental and necessary, but there is also an imperative to study the causes of poverty so that we can pull up the weeds of injustice by the root. Then, when we know which structures and which people are responsible for the problem, we call them out. Gutierrez notes that prophets always point with their finger at those responsible, sometimes risking their lives to do it. Here, Gutierrez cites a passage from Job 24, which contains a commentary on the plight of the poor as a direct result of the active exploitation of the rich. Let me read the biblical citation and then offer some thoughts on its meaning for us today. Quote, The rich thrust the needy off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Like wild asses in the desert, they go out to their toil, scavenging in the wasteland food for their young. They reap in a field not their own, and they glean in the vine vineyard of the wicked. There are those who snatch the orphan child from the breast and take as a pledge the infant of the poor. The murderer rises at dusk to kill the poor and needy, and in the night is like a thief. End quote. Three specific moments come to mind. First, on reaping in a field not their own, in 2017, I attended an uncomfortable but also unforgettable concert by the revolutionary Mexican singer Maria Ines Ochoa. And she was performing at La Fragua, our Jesuit theater in Honduras, on a swelteringly hot summer night. I remember it well because my shirt was soaking with sweat she sang a mixture of folk songs and liberationist songs. One of them was called El Abuelo, the grandfather. I won't forget the last lines of that song, which when I heard them occasioned in me a deepening of my commitment to liberation. In English, they are, quote, In the countryside, once more, we hear the peasant shouting, the land should belong to those who work on it. In the countryside once more, we hear the peasant shouting, the land should belong to those who work on it. End quote. It's true. The workers produce the value of the land. So the workers should own the land and the produce they cultivate. Agrarian reform is essential. Landowners who accumulate or better put, stole, property should have no right to its production value. It makes me sick to think that a wealthy landowner could make millions of dollars each year from no work, while the peasants who work the land earn barely enough, if that, to survive. The rural bourgeoisie reap in a land that belongs to farm workers. Then there's the line from Job, there are those who snatch the orphan child from the breast and take as a pledge the infant of the poor. And I am reminded of the dirty war in Argentina in which the army 
disappeared thousands of leftist parents threw their bodies into the Atlantic Ocean and forcefully adopted their infant children. And this phenomenon is exposed for its perversion in the movie La Historia Oficial by Luis Puenzo, which if you're at a university, you might be able to watch on the platform Canopy. Lastly, in Job we read, The murderer rises at dusk to kill the poor and needy. I think of the cowards at the FBI who murdered the Chicago Black Panther Fred Hampton in his apartment at 4.45 a.m. on December 4th, 1969. And I think of the cowardly cops of Louisville, Kentucky, who murdered the 26-year-old black woman Breonna Taylor in her apartment shortly after midnight on March 13, 2020. These evil men carry out their work under the cloak of darkness, and our racist, capitalist justice system only obscures matters more. Jesus looks at wage slavery, at forced disappearances, at child abductions, and at racist homicides and weeps. God does not take the side of plantation owners, of fascist military men, nor of murderous FBI agents and police officers. Rather, God hears the cry of the poor. On the topic of poverty, I want to share a story from my personal life of ministry in Honduras. It was 2017, and a Jesuit candidate, that is an applicant to the Society of Jesus, was living with the Jesuit community there at the time. His name was Pedro Antonio, and he invited me to go with him to visit a family. He was planning on teaching them some songs and said, it'd be great if you could come along with me, meet this family, they're great folks, and have an experience. Uh, we'll probably stay overnight and then come back the next morning. So I did that with him, had a fantastic time with that family. They became great friends of mine. And uh, we were coming back the next morning on bicycle when something happened. We were just riding along, conversing about Honduras, about our lives. And a man came up from behind us on his own bicycle. He was moving very quickly. And he ordered us to get down from our bikes and uh, showed us a gun and then told us to give him everything that we had. So I thought to myself, well, I'm definitely going to give him everything that I had. I, I did want not want any trouble. And so I was giving him my wallet, my phone, my backpack. And just as, at that time, as I was handing all of the, these things over to this gentleman, a car approached. And I thought to myself, well, this is horrible. Not only are we going to get robbed, but we're also probably going to get kidnapped. But that was not the case. The car that was approaching was a man and maybe his girlfriend, and they had seen that we were being robbed and wanted to save us. So the guy in the car pulled out a gun and pointed it at the thief. So now there were two guns, uh, but I think the thief knew that he was probably going to lose this gunfight and put down his gun. And so the guy in the car walked over, uh, he pointed his gun uh, right into the stomach of the thief and turned to me and my friend Pedro Antonio and asked, A que pide la justicia? Which are words that echo in the back of my mind until this day may be translated as what does justice demand, which 
could be interpreted as, do you want me to kill the thief? And Pedro Antonio and I were like, no, no, please, we don't want any trouble. We are just Christian missionaries going about our business. And, uh, and this man you know, came up and, and began to rob us. Then the guy who was saving us was kind of angry at this response of mercy from Pedro Antonio and from me and turns to us and says, what do you know in this country when we have the opportunity to pick someone off who is doing evil, we do it. This man, we let him free. He'll just go and rob someone else. He'll continue to cause trouble in our community. He's probably just taking all of the money and uh, purchasing drugs with the money that uh, he steals. We said, no, please, we, we really do just want mercy. Please don't hurt him. Just uh, send him on his way. And eventually, it took some more convincing, quite a long time, in fact. But the man did let the thief go, and we returned to our journey back to the Jesuit residence. And I share this story because I've come to reflect on this moment over the years and its meaning for my life, its meaning for Honduras, its meaning for my mission as a Jesuit. And I've come to look upon this man who was stealing from us with a great amount of empathy. All human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. All of us are made good. And yet, through the social pressures of history, through Spain, Britain, the United States, and local government officials pillaging communities in Honduras, stealing from them what belongs to the people, poverty has been the result of this systematic oppression of people. And many people, without a sense of community, without a sense of, of dignity, without a means to support their family, do turn to thievery do turn to gang violence in order to care for themselves and survive. And I think of this man in that way. And I wish that we would work for a world together in which this kind of moment that produced a certain trauma in my life, that it would never have to happen. That we would live in a society where people have enough that they do not have to steal. That's the kind of world for which I think we are working here at the Liberation Theology Podcast, that people would be liberated from these conditions of oppression that produce violence, that perpetuate violence, that we would work together for a world of justice and peace. God's taking the side of the poor goes back to the first recorded murder in the Bible, when Cain killed Abel. God condemns Cain, saying, quote, Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. End quote. The blood of Abel is a cry that reaches the heavens, and God wants Cain to hear that cry too. He tells Cain to listen to its sound. God hears it. We must hear it too. The oppressor must hear it too. So our preferential option for the poor, Gutierrez argues, is, quote, a theocentric option, end quote. Our solidarity with the poor flows from God's solidarity with the poor. God loves everyone, but the poor are the first in God's solidarity. The church should reflect this prioritization 
we should incarnate St. Oscar Romero's vision for the church cited by Gutierrez, quote, from among the poor, the church can be for everyone, end quote. Let me attempt to get at the meaning of this quote from Romero. When the church is middle or upper class centric, then the church cannot be for everyone because the poor do not have access. For instance, if daily masses at the parish are during work hours, when only the rich with flexible schedules or no work schedules can attend, then we have a serious problem. The sacrament is inaccessible to the masses. However, if the church is lower class centric, operating with a special attentiveness to the lives of the poor, then everyone has access. Masses can occur according to the schedules of the working poor, and the rich who have more flexibility can accommodate themselves accordingly. The rich have access everywhere, but the poor do not. Therefore, the church, if it is to be for all, must operate from among the poor, as St. Oscar Romero invites us to incarnate. But what is the meaning of the word option in the preferential option for the poor? It certainly does not mean that God's and our preference for the poor is optional. Rather, it goes back to the Latin root of the word, which indicates the free and faithful character of a decision. It is a deep and permanent solidarity of daily insertion into the world of the poor. So perhaps a better word than option is commitment. Before anything else, a Christian is one committed to a solidarity with the poor directed towards the end of liberation. The bishops at Puebla are clear that the preferential option for the poor is independent of their moral or personal situation. Here the words of Dorothy Day come to mind, quote, communities are made up of the unlovable as well as the lovable, end quote. There are those in poor communities who are hard to love. We can think of that man I mentioned just recently, the man who had uh, pointed a gun at my friend and at Pedro Antonio and asked us to uh, give him everything we had. I also think of a visit to a prison as part of a literacy program a few years ago, during which several prisoners made comments about my body and what they would like to do with me that, to be frank, were instances of sexual harassment. In no way do I want to excuse or condone their predatory behavior, but I do want to be clear that I returned to that prison later to continue working because I consider that the work of solidarity and education needed to continue regardless of some of the prisoners' socially acquired attitudes of harassment. Once more, I'm not suggesting that people place themselves in abusive situations. I'm suggesting that the work of liberation involves working alongside people who are often caught up in harmful moral or personal patterns. And it can be scary and vulnerable work, and it may and often does produce wounds. But I think that it's worth it. And I think that this work must continue. We cast our lot with oppressed peoples because God is God. And God casts God's lot with oppressed peoples. And we don't put conditions on God. In the preferential option for the poor, God explodes our notions of justice. We might think that wages, for example, should correspond to the number of hours worked or to the amount produced. But the generosity of God means that all workers receive the same wage. Such is the parable in Matthew 20, in which those who start working in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening all earn the same amount, despite the fact that some have worked longer hours than others. The day laborers who are picked last by the landowner receive the same wages as those picked first. 
And this strange act of generosity flies in the face of any strict notion of justice. But it is an instance of the larger pattern in the Gospels that Jesus often mentions. The last will be first, and the first will be last. There is an antithesis here a juxtaposition, an overturning of the dominant system. The last are the poor, the hungry, the crying. The first are the rich, the satisfied, the laughing. Gutierrez notes that the Greek term for poor in Luke's Beatitudes means the needy, the beggar. The term appears 34 times in the New Testament, 24 of which are in the Gospel. In antithesis to these poor, these materially poor, to whom Jesus gives the kingdom, there are the rich to whom Jesus brings woe. As Mary states in the Magnificat, lifting up the lowly means casting down the mighty from their thrones, and filling up the hungry means sending the rich away empty. Jesus thinks the same as his mother. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells the story of the rich person and the poor Lazarus. The poor person ends up in paradise, and the rich person ends up in hell. Our society puts the rich on a pedestal at the expense of the poor, but God's society elevates the poor at the expense of the rich. The rich turn down God's invitation to the heavenly banquet, too caught up in their earthly affairs of wealth production. But invitees from the highways and byways, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame, they attend. Jesus says he comes for the sinner, not the just, for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus comes for lepers, for public sinners. All the people who are considered the last and the least, these are the people who enter first into the reign of God. The Beatitudes are the summation of this perspective that characterize Jesus' reign. Sometimes, people will claim that Luke's version of the Beatitudes are more material and that Matthew's version of the Beatitudes are more spiritual. Gutierrez vehemently rejects this interpretation. He says that Matthew is not a spiritualization. To be poor in spirit means to be a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus means to be one who welcomes the rain and who is in solidarity with others. Matthew's list is not a spiritualization, but a different way of phrasing the same thing. Spiritual poverty is a radical availability to do the will of God. And the will of God is that we accompany the poor on their way to liberation. Gutierrez comments briefly on each of Matthew's Beatitudes, but for now, I just want to highlight two of them. Blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the pure in heart. The Peruvian theologian claims that those who mourn means, quote, those who have shared the sorrow of others to the point of tears, end quote. A brief story along these lines. In 2017, on Good Friday, Cardinal Blaise Supich of the Archdiocese of Chicago led a walk for peace through the Englewood neighborhood in memory of victims of gun violence. At the front of the walk, a black man held a large wooden cross with the words, Stop Shooting, painted across it. At the conclusion, the cardinal preached, quote, Look at the faces of the people here today, those who are victims left behind by the deaths of their sons, brothers, cousins, daughters. Have compassion for them, end quote. A few months after participating in that walk, I was sitting next to a Honduran teenager in a marginal neighborhood outside of La Ceiba. He asked me, what is the United States like? It's much better than here, isn't it? I want to go there. At first I said, yes, it is much better. A man can earn wages seven times greater than what he can earn here, though he does the same work. Then I remembered that march on Good Friday, and I said, beginning to cry, 
but in many ways, the United States is not much better. Last year, more than 4,000 people were shot in my city, and about two people die by the bullet every day. He said, Yes, here too, many people are shot, and many people die. But I want to live, and I need money, so I will go to the United States. When he said those words, my tears fell more strongly. It was the second time in my life that I can remember crying, and it is also the most recent time that I have cried. Does the suffering of the poor move us to tears of solidarity? Does, as St. Alberto Hurtado say, the suffering of the poor make us sick to our stomach? Gutierrez says that purity of heart means acting without duplicity, walking the walk. And recently, I have been floored by the sheer dishonesty of the ruling class in the United States. We are promised that wars will end, but they continue now to the amount of $715 billion, according to the president's latest budget. We are promised a certain amount of relief funds, but we receive less. We are told that oil pipelines will not run through sacred lands, but they do. We are guaranteed federal leadership on the pandemic, but it does not come. We are assured of an increase in the minimum wage, but that element is dropped from the legislation. We are given assurance that there will be no family separation, no kids behind bars, and it continues. We are told that immigrants will be welcomed, but then our leader says that immigrants should not come at all. It is horrifying, disgusting, disheartening, sickening, tear-jerking. Love is shown more in deeds than in words, so show me the deeds. Truly, my friends, we cannot trust a church, and we cannot trust a government run by the rich and powerful. That's not the preferential option. Rather, the church, if it is to be church at all, must be the church of the poor. St. Paul describes this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Quote, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Who does God choose by preference? In Spanish, la gente sencilla, simple folk, the salt of the earth. The church does not belong to philosophers, nor to kings, nor to CEOs. The church, the vanguard of the reign of God, belongs to the poor. Medellin cemented this vision of the church. The bishops wrote in search of, quote, the face of an authentically poor missionary and paschal church without ties to any temporal power and boldly committed to the liberation of the whole human being and of all human beings, end quote. They include this vision in their document on the youth, and it makes sense to me. The youth are sick of a church that is not as radical as the Jesus they know. They see through the hypocrisy of a church that preaches poverty but revels in riches. The youth will only find meaning in a church that is poor and missionary, a church that preaches Jesus crucified and risen. 
the church must be so because Jesus was so. As the Vatican II document Lumen Gentium says, the church, quote, recognizes in the poor and suffering the image of its poor and patient founder and seeks to serve Christ in them, end quote. And if the church takes this risk of the poverty of solidarity, of the protagonism of the masses, if the church puts skin in the game, as did Jesus Christ, if the church takes a meaningful stand on the side of the oppressed, then the church will be taking up a cross. Are we willing to drink the cup that Jesus drank? What are we willing to sacrifice? What have we done for the poor Christ? What are we doing for the poor Christ? What will we do for the poor Christ? Thanks for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Our next show will cover another giant of an essay, Ignacio Eucaria's The Historicity of Christian Salvation. It's one of my favorites. Powerful, clear, revolutionary. But for now, let's end with a closing prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Risen Jesus, God of life, before you rose from the dead on the third day, you were incarcerated, tortured, and executed. Why? You said that God's kingdom belongs not to the Roman emperor, nor to King Herod, nor to the chief priest, nor to the clergy, but to the poor. I pray, loving Jesus, that we may continue your labor of building up this kingdom by aligning ourselves with the protagonism of oppressed peoples, using our knowledge, our privilege, and our resources for the sake of the liberation of our local, national, and international communities from anti-black racism, anti-Asian racism, sexism, economic inequality, and indeed all forms of oppression. And when we face resistance to our work of justice and freedom, because liberating action always entails confrontation with opposition, may the truth of your resurrection strengthen us. Nothing, neither life nor death, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, incarnate in our love for each other. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.